if, let me say two things. Remember to text, that's confidential, text questions. We're going to have about a good half hour for Q&A, and it would be much better to have questions. Oftentimes, the, I'm going to teach about bigger ideas, and you're going to think, well, what the heck does that mean in the context of my marriage? And it's really helpful to flesh it out with some questions. So please, you may already have some questions based on what's happened. Uh, text those, okay? The other thing is, in this, I like to give all, kind of all the contents in your workbook. So for those of you who like to take notes, it's there so you can just listen. That's why I provide a workbook. And I would encourage you more to write down a big idea that's helpful than trying to, you know, get a lot of stuff down, okay? So if you want to follow along in the workbook, we're going to pick up at page four under session one, understanding the path to togetherness, okay? And I want to start by thinking through a passage in Matthew 19 where Jesus kind of helps us see what he thinks about marriage, okay? So the Pharisees come to Jesus in this passage and they say, can a man get divorced for any reason? It was a popular question in that day and there was a lot in the religious law. Men only had the power to divorce, women couldn't divorce, and men were divorcing their wives for burning meals. So there was a lot of contention because Jesus felt two things. You're not honoring God's covenant, but you're also hurting the weaker. Like to just divorce a woman and children meant similar to today where poverty, different like. So Jesus on both accounts was pretty passionate about his view of marriage. So he says to them, haven't you read the scriptures? I teach adjunct at Beeson Divinity. It would be like me saying to the Old Testament professor who asked me a question to say back to him, haven't you read the scriptures? Okay? It's not a kind question. Okay? Jesus is going to pick a little bit of a fight with them. All right? Um, and Jesus says, haven't you read that from the beginning the scriptures, they say this, for this reason a man leaves his mother and father and cleaves to his wife and two become one. Jesus' answer is, haven't you read like it's supposed to be togetherness? This is a beautiful thing. And then the Pharisees say, well, then why did Moses allow them to write a certificate of divorce? Why did Moses allow divorce? And Jesus says to them, because of your hard-hearted wickedness. Think about that, okay? He makes them look at themselves. And then Jesus says, it's not what God intended. And he says, really, unless there's been unfaithfulness, you've got to stick together. And now the disciples pipe in, realize it was between Jesus and the Pharisees. And now the disciples are like, hey, hey, wait a minute, Jesus, slow down. And essentially they say, if you've got to stick together through thick and thin, then why get married? Okay? And so I have that passage here. If you look, the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying but only to those whom it is given. Now, I don't think Jesus is saying it's better, it's better not to marry. What he's saying is you're right. If you have to stick together through thick and thin, it's really hard. You guys are right. Here's how Eugene Peterson translates that passage. I have it there for you. Jesus' disciples objected. If those are the term of marriage, we're stuck. Why get married? But Jesus said not everyone is mature enough to live a married life. It requires a certain aptitude and grace. Marriage isn't for everyone. Some from birth seemingly never give marriage a thought. Others never get asked or accepted. 
And some decide not to get married for kingdom reasons. But if you're capable of growing into the largeness of marriage, do it. Think about that sentence. If you're capable of growing into the largeness of marriage, do it. The very first marriage sermon I did in 1994, I think, I said this, that marriage is built for maturity. If you let it mature you, you'll find joy, find happiness, find togetherness. I think that's what Jesus is affirming. I said this in the opening, but I just I want to pause. And I want to ask you, how many of you can accept that your marriage is hard because it's hard? If I asked you, why is your marriage hard? You might say it's your spouse or this or that. What if you were just to accept it's hard because marriage is hard? If you were going to run a marathon, you wouldn't sign up for it after you decided a week later. And then you wouldn't start running and think, this is easy. You wouldn't do that. Do you realize that's what we do sometimes with marriage? We don't prepare for it. Then as we do it, we think, what's wrong that I'm getting tired? Why do I need refreshment? Okay? If we actually accept that marriage is hard, I believe it gives us energy to begin to move forward. And I want you to think a lot about how the evil one will deceive you. If your marriage is not supposed to be hard, then the conclusion often is, I'm doing something wrong or my spouse is doing something wrong. And you don't work together against evil. All right? And you don't move towards redemption because you're believing it shouldn't be hard. All right. So let's move down. How do we grow into the largeness of marriage? Or how do we participate together in a way that we're growing into the largeness of marriage? First thing I want to say is, Learn to welcome the way marriage exposes your commitment to self. Sinfulness turns us in on ourselves while love turns us out toward and with one another. It's not an easy turn. I have Proverbs 20, 27 there. The Lord's lamp sheds light on a person's life, searching the innermost parts. One of the hardest things in marriage is the feeling of being watched. It is the constant surveillance that can get to one, that can wear one down like a bright light shining in the eyes, and that leads inevitably to the crumbling of all defenses, all facades, all the customary shams and masquerades of the personality. So let me make this practical, right? If we're going to let marriage expose our commitment to self, part of what that means is you see your kind of sins and weaknesses and how that may impact your spouse, and you give them permission to feel that. Christians say things like, we're not supposed to meet each other's needs, right, in marriage. Now, I mean, we think we're supposed to help each other and love each other, but fundamentally we think somehow our faith, but then we easily get disappointed. I mean, how many of you have looked at your spouse and said, I give you permission to have disappointment with me? All right. This is Corinthians. Um, if our hope in Christ is for this life only, we are to be pitied more than anyone. What my wife did to me, I thought I was just a hard-working, really good guy. I didn't grow up in a believing family, but somehow I learned that asking for forgiveness was a technique that worked, that worked to get people off your back. And so oftentimes when there was tension, I would just ask for forgiveness. And then I became a Christian, and I realized it was spiritual. So I really started asking for forgiveness with more passion. Now... I really wasn't asking for forgiveness. I was saying, I'm above you. I can ask for forgiveness. You're really the problem. So the first two years of our marriage, I ran around asking my wife for forgiveness whenever there was tension. 
And at two years in, you know what she said? I don't think you mean it. Now, guys, that was really loving. And what I began to think was, I don't know if I mean it. And then I began to think, I could see myself quickly trying to say, forgive me, and I didn't mean it. And I would say, sweetheart, I got to think about this. I don't even know what I feel. It was such a quick, all right? So marriage began to expose my commitment to self. We trust these things before we get married, and then marriage exposes them, and we think marriage is the problem. Marriage has exposed the problem, our idolatry, our commitment to self. And as we just let that become more real, then slowly you can turn towards something different. I know this may sound strange, but I don't even think it's actually great in the context of a marriage to like ask forgiveness quickly. And that's not just because of what I learned, but to some degree in an ongoing relationship, you're gonna keep kind of wounding and hurting one another. What can be more helpful is just listening to your spouse talk about some of that and not promising to do better and not trying harder, but trusting that over time, the Lord can grow you into accepting those differences, okay? So that's the first thing, is learn to welcome the way marriage exposes your commitment to self. The second thing is accept the only way forward is through the gospel. Guys, I say this, and this is Tim Keller, the gospel is good news, not good advice. So there I have the passage from 1 Corinthians, for the Jews ask for a sign, and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So here's what I'm saying there. The Jews look for a sign. They're charismatics, okay? That's not you guys. Although I bet you some of you are closet charismatics after I say this, maybe, okay? Because charismatics just one big thing. We can just pray this away. We can, get, we can manipulate God to come down and just rescue us. You have, you have strained and made effort like you've done like rain dances wanting God to send water. Just, God, give us a sign. Do something big. That's a charismatic. Presbyterians seek for wisdom. You come to conferences and you read books and you listen to Tim Keller, okay? Just some more information. Just some more information. And here's what Paul said. I preach Christ crucified, not resurrected, not ascended. Daily deaths, it's that iron sharpening iron, okay? You guys, what that really means is as you've hurt one another, are you more fixated on I've got to fix it instead of seeking forgiveness and asking the Lord to heal and to restore, to touch, to work in our hearts, okay? One of the biggest turns, first turns I made where I realized both of the first two things I've talked about, where I began to turn from self and really do the gospel better. We've been married about five years, and it was a long weekend. Now, I didn't know this back then, but I was scared of long weekends because what you're supposed to do on long weekends is enjoy yourself and relax a little bit more because you've got an extra day, okay? But you're not working. You're not achieving anything. You're not accomplishing anything, and you don't have any schedule. You're supposed to just have fun. Now, this may sound crazy to half of you, and maybe it makes sense to the other half. That was really hard for me because I didn't know how to enjoy myself, and I didn't know how to relax, and I didn't know how to have fun. I'm actually getting better at it at 56, okay? Now, my wife was the opposite. I think she saw that long weekend in the calendar and started dreaming about it. She was a teacher, okay? 
And so at the end of that long weekend, what became really clear to me was that it wasn't much fun for my wife, okay? Now, guys, I had spent every ounce within me up to that point trying to make people happy with me, trying to manipulate my world to make people praise me and say that I was good, okay? This was the first time in 28 years I was going to ask someone to say something about me that might be hard to hear. And so I said to my wife, I said, sweetheart, my sense has been it's been a really hard weekend for you. I just don't know how hard. And guys, I'm kind of more like the woman. I, back then, I wanted to talk more and figure everything out and push through the communication. So I said, I want you to tell me how hard the weekend's been for you, but I'm not going to answer you back. I will say nothing. I will walk away, and I will pray about it. And so she said, you know how you go to the summer carnival every year and you want to win a stuffed animal and you shoot the water in the clown's mouth and the, throw the softball at the milk bottle and you never win that stuffed animal? She said that year you finally win the stuffed animal and you're hugging it and you're overjoyed. She said, that's what it would have felt like for me to laugh in our house this weekend. Because a beautiful thing happened. For one of the first times in my life, I wept. And what I saw was you weren't just a good, hardworking guy, that you were overstressed out and you were very controlling. And my tears were, I saw life from my wife's perspective. And I softened, okay? And I didn't apologize, I didn't try to do better, I just listened and thought that's really got to be hard, okay? Now, guys, I don't... Um, we really believe the gospel, right? We really believe we're moving from idolatry to worship. There's not an easy way into that. So if you're practicing at exposure and naming some things you do wrong, not 24-7, we're going to talk about some other ways, okay? But that's movement into the gospel where daily deaths bring life, okay? All right, let's move down. Um, the next one, work toward life-giving, connected differentiation. Remember to send questions, y'all. All right. You guys, when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, and he said, I'm a man of unclean lips, I think part of what he might have seen, you know, the Lord are three persons that relate so well, they're called one God. They're totally different, and they totally use that different to give and receive and support one another without any jealousy, without any anger, without any sin. Have you ever seen that kind of unbridled unselfishness? Okay? I mean, think about the friend who always comes through for you. When you need to be challenged, they challenge you. When they need to weep with you, they weep with you. When they need to laugh with you, they laugh with you. We don't have that because we're in a sinful, broken world. To move towards differentiation where you're really different and you're really unique is a hard thing to do, okay? So let me give you a little better example of differentiation. Um, you've heard a little bit about how serious and hardworking I am and all that kind of stuff. So before I got married and early in marriage, I didn't understand why people like dogs because it just seems like work with no enjoyment, okay? Oh, just There's an end to the story. So, whoa, whoa. Some of the dog lovers are about to get out of their seat, okay? So, I even had my mother-in-law, not only did she have dogs, she, she has passed away, she had two poodles, 
So if you're not a dog person, you're really not liking the poodle scene, okay? <laughs> so I remember having a, a discussion with her where I said, I will never be a dog person. Can I tell you what is probably the greatest joy in our marriage is when we take our dog to the dog park and I enjoy it. Uh, Tinker is our dog and I love our dog. I'm a dog person, I get it. That dog, I can come in eight times on the same day on Saturday and every time she's happy to see me. <laughs> Guys, I understand better what it means that God rejoices over us with joy, okay? Now, guys, I learned to relax. I learned to change and soften because of my wife. We've been married about eight or nine years, and we went down to the Gulf for a vacation. And this is when we were beginning to differentiate a little bit. She said, at the end of the vacation, we were getting in the car. We were going home. She said, you seemed a lot more relaxed this vacation. Now, what she didn't say was, it was so great, I'm looking forward to next year. Okay? <laughs> but she named a difference because I was changing. Now, by the same token, I told you that story where my wife about the carnival and the stuffed animal. Now, who my wife is, she didn't grow up dreaming of saying strong words that pierced her husband's heart. But that woman is more intentional. She's relationally stronger. She's more involved relationally because we've changed a little bit. and We've differentiated, but we're also really different. I'll give you one last picture of that. First year we were married, we were, lived in North Jersey. I'm from the Jersey Shore, but not the one you've seen on MTV, if you've seen that, okay? But that's where we lived our first year. And my wife liked the theater. So I thought, we'll go to the theater. I'll take her to the theater, okay? I grew up in a family where if you weren't an athlete, you were looked down upon, okay? So if you liked theater, you were looked down upon. And so I thought, we'll go to the theater and we'll enjoy it. Well, I made that evening so difficult for my wife because I felt so uncomfortable. All I talked about how uncomfortable it was and how much I didn't really get what was happening on the stage, okay? Now, 15 years later, we bought Bur uh, Broadway and Birmingham tickets, and we got a series of four tickets. Now, two of those uh, shows my wife went to with friends, and I didn't feel offended or I didn't feel like I got to be good enough to go with her and enjoy all four. I was more comfortable with myself. I let her go with good friends or encouraged her, and she went and had a great time. More fun than when we went. However, we went. I still don't get it, y'all. I'm sorry for those of you who love the theater. But I was able to relax and see the smile on my wife's face and enjoy it with her. Okay? That's differentiation. Does that make sense? We don't get there quickly or easily. All right. Um, let's move, let me see. Uh, I've already quoted that thing from John Gottman. One of his most provocative findings was that approximately 70% of the issues that couples disagree about at the beginning of the relationship do not change over time. Okay, remember, what can grow up around your differences? Think about the nature of love. It does not take into account a wrong suffering. It does not seek its own. It does not act unbecomingly. Guys, when my wife and I go to the dog park and, and we feel closer, do you know we're mocking all that pain early in our marriage? And again, I don't mean the first two years. If this is, a, this is the kingdom, if you're entering into the kingdom, it is common. If you're moving forward in that, then you can experience more together that mocks the pain because you realize I'm just entering into more and more and more and more is going to come, okay? So as you become differentiated, as you share more love, it mocks where you've come from. 
I'll give you one other picture, especially for those of you who have small kids, all right? Um, I grew out of my anger. I think we're going to talk about that in a second as we continue to. My anger was more like uh, just vengeance and wasn't good. And then it, it's just become strength, where I can be angry and seek good with strength, okay? So early on, a lot of times my middle daughter, who loved to do things with me and was the softest forever, for some reason she always seemed to be around when I was extra angry. And one time we were doing a project together and I kicked a wall and left a scuff mark on the wall, okay? She was about four years old and I think every time she walked by that, she was like, oh, my dad's a mean guy, okay? A couple years later, we were packing the van to go see my family in Jersey, and that whole trip and everything about it back then got me pretty anxious. And she said, Dad, are you going to ruin this trip too? And I said, sweetheart, I didn't even know I was getting uptight. I'm so sorry. I said, I'm really going to help that you said something, and I'm going to really try to pay attention, but I don't know how much it's going to help. So if I get like this again, you have my permission to tell me. Well, eight and a half hours later in Virginia, she said, hey, Dad, you remember how you said, well, now's the time. Okay. Now, guys, at 16, she said, we were in a new house. And she said, Dad, there's no scuff mark in this house. You're a different man. At 21, we Skyped. She was out of the country on her birthday. And she put a posted thing on Facebook or wherever that said, happy birthday to my everyday counselor, father, and friend. Three weeks ago, she called me in difficulty we talked through it. I wept with her, and she said, Dad, what would I do without you? Okay? Guys, if redemption's happening, then what is painful becomes part of a better story. Okay? All right. Let's move down. Deal thoughtfully with anger. Move through vengeance towards redemptive love. good Presbyterians, I'm sure you know that Romans 1 through 11 is a beauty, be probably the most beautiful treatise on theology we have in the whole, all the scriptures, okay? So Romans 12 starts this way. As um, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. If you believe all this stuff, therefore now you're going to want to give your life away. And a couple verses later, Paul gives 15 imperative commands. He does that nowhere else in the scriptures. He tells you 15 things to do or not do. Weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice, practice hospitality. It's like Paul gets incredibly passionate, and he says this. If you believe this stuff and you realize it's all grace and you're forgiven, you're going to want to give your life away. Give it away. And then he says, but don't do this. Don't do this one thing. Don't be vengeful. Your fleshly nature, the heart of your fleshly nature is vengeance. It says this about the flesh. It's hostile to God. It always has been, and it always will. And wherever you are in your sanctification journey, if this is your fleshly nature and this is Christ in you, wherever you are, part of that is vengeance and anger. Now, as Christians, we do vengeance with a smile on our face because we know we're not supposed to be vengeful, okay? So I'll just try to give you an example that I use. Let's just say, um, I don't know, you're going to go on vacation. And even both of you work, and one of you is going to be responsible to, you were going to get off a little early and pack stuff up, and the other gets home, and it's not packed up, and, and you're quiet for the first hour of the trip. 
Guys, that's vengeance. That's vengeance. And, and we do that with each other, okay? Now, what I want you to try to buy into, I'm going to talk about deal thoughtfully with anger, move through vengeance towards redemptive love. I want you to accept something. You have vengeance and you've used vengeance, okay? James 4, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not to source your pleasures, that wage war in your members, all right? And it talks about how we're friends with the world, and that's enmity towards God. And then it says he jealously desires the spirit in you. And then he says, let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. All right? You Presbyterians hopefully get that, okay? Better than a lot of other. In fact, I want you to laugh a little bit more. Don't be so Presbyterian, okay? But I think the thing we do is we don't allow emotion or we don't show that emotion in a way that helps us move towards redemption. Now, early in my marriage, I thought I had dealt with anger. That's when I was running around the house asking my wife for forgiveness. Then I got kind of confronted that I was angrier than I thought and that I needed to be more honest about that. So I started feeling my anger. And in an argument, for the first time, I cursed. And, I, and what I thought was, you have been cursing at your wife for three years and you've never seen it because you were a Pharisee. And that's where I had to begin to repent. But what I want you to think, because as believers, I think what we do is we feel like we're not supposed to have anger. We're supposed to get through anger quickly. I want to help you to think about it thoughtfully. I have the passage here from Ephesians. Having, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So let me tell you what's going on here. The first three chapters in Ephesians, again, credible theology. The next three chapters live this out. So it starts off, Ephesians 4.1, Therefore, as a bondservant of Christ, live worthy or according to your calling. So we go down to that verse we read. And it says, um, this is the ESV, Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth to one another with his neighbor. Another version says, stop telling lies to each other. Okay? Another version says, stop being indifferent to what's right and wrong. What this is saying is, if you're maturing, Ephesians was written to a young church to teach them how to become an older, more mature church. What it says is, you won't pretend anymore about life. And you begin to feel that life has real meaning and things matter, and therefore, you're going to begin to feel some anger. All right? And I don't, again, I don't know what your experience has been, but maybe a good illustration is sometimes, like, you feel together, and then maybe you have a child, okay? And you were thinking, I was willing to kind of live with your messiness, but I'm not going to let you pass that on to my child, okay? And that might arouse a little bit. Like, my wife never felt comfortable expressing anger. And then I became a father, and I thought, am I Hannibal? Like, like... Women, especially early on, she was like, like this child done grew up inside of me and I'm with them all the time and if I need your help, I'll let you know. And I was like, I'm not that scary or bad, am I? Okay, but she began to be less indifferent to what's right and wrong, okay? So it says, be angry and don't sin. I think the first thing you have to accept is I can have anger. I've got to practice and learn how to use it. Have you ever felt comfortable saying I've got to learn how to practice and use my anger? How are you going to get better at it? 
okay? So it says, be angry and then don't sin. When it says, don't let the sun go down in your anger, that's where most believers feel, I'm not supposed to be angry, or I'm supposed to get through my anger quickly. It's actually a paraphrase of Psalm 4.4, which I have there for you, and it says this, be angry and do not sin, ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Do you realize that's the exact opposite of what it has come to mean for most evangelical believers? I'm not supposed to be angry. I'm supposed to get through it quickly if I am. Not, and this is the deal. That's an admonition. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. Process your anger. Think about your anger. Talk about some friends who you tell, I get angry at my wife. I have anger and I get angry at her. Help me. Pray for me. Discern it. Is it justified? Is it not? Help me to turn away from it. It's an admonition to process your anger because if you don't, the devil's going to be your counselor. Does that make sense? Okay. I'm only saying that John Gottman, who I cited earlier, has done more research on marriage. The number one killer in marriage is contempt or vengeance. If you don't learn to relate in a way where you're disarming your anger, okay, it's not going to change. We'll get more and more passive and more and more withdrawn having contempt instead of having the humility to work together. An empty stable stays clean. No income comes from an empty stable. Okay? If you don't allow some mess, you have no horse and oxen, you're not making any money. Your stable's clean. You got horse and oxen, you got some mess, but you're increased, okay? Now, I'll give you um, a little illustration. When I was encouraged to have anger and practice at it. I want you to understand that um, I had been angry for the 31 years prior to that advice but had not admitted it. And th this is not being taped, is that right? Yeah, or it is. Is it being taped, yes or no? What's that? Recorded, yeah, okay, I'm sorry, that's a more modern, like not taped, all right. Well, let me just say this, I, um, I grew up in a home where anger wasn't really beautiful. Let's just say that, okay? And I went inward and decided I could make those angry people happy by what I did, okay? So when I was felt I can have anger and I can practice it, I was out riding my bike one day for exercise, and I was coming this way, and a guy was coming this way, and I had to ride away. But there was a guy in a truck, and I could see he was kind of in a rush. I just felt it, and he didn't want to stop, but I had to right away. And I thought, I've been stopping for people for 30 years, dude. Today ain't the day, okay? It's a little funny. Come on, y'all, okay? So I go this way. He cuts me off. He turns and cuts me off, and I fall off my bike. And he rides a little bit forward. Now, y'all, I was hyper-legalistic. Hadn't seen a movie in 10 years, hadn't listened to Christian music, and hadn't cursed. And I can tell you, when I saw him getting out of his car and realized it was him, some choice words came out of my mouth as I began to run towards him. And he got back in his car and drove away. And I thought, that felt really good. Now, it was the first use of my anger. It wasn't beautiful. I actually think the guy needed it in God's sovereignty. <laughs> Guys, we are broken people. Could you trust that more Okay, now fast forward about 15 years later. For those of you who are familiar with Homewood, I was at Merchant's Walk where TCBY is. They have very thin parking spaces. And there was somebody in a Hummer, a 
okay, that I pulled up next to. There was no way for me to get out of my car without touching his car. And I realized I was going to touch his car. I didn't even know he was in his car, but I just, I get nervous when I pull into there because I'm not a good driver. And I've actually backed into a car there. Anyway, so I'm a little nervous. I get out of my car, touches his car. I didn't realize he was in. He runs around and looks at me and says, um, what are you doing? Or something like that. And literally, all that came to me was, is your car that important? Now, you guys, he was trying to bully me. And oftentimes, we don't stand up to bullies. And I think I was doing justice. I wasn't me. I just said, is your car that important? And he kind of walked away. He didn't go any further. Now, I think that was a good use of anger. I think it was strength. I could give you other examples. I was a little more controlled than the mountain biking incident 15 years earlier, okay? Guys, anger is our desire to do justice. What we are angry at is evil. And he advances his purposes in this world. We have got to have strength to stand against him. So we've got to learn to, I promise you, as you just grow more stronger and learn to stand against evil, it will happen as you have strength. So you've got to learn to have anger and practice at it. Okay? Now, I'm going to say one other thing, and then we're going to do some Q&A. Celebrate gradual change and small victories. So let me give you a story. All right? I told you I grew up at the Jersey Shore, all right? And at about, I don't know when you learned to ride a bike, six, seven, eight, something like that, where you can go off on your own. I was around that age, and I grew up less than a mile from the Atlantic Ocean. And I, I'm a doer, I'm up early, I would love to go down to the beach and just walk in the morning when hardly anyone was there. But oftentimes in the morning, there's an onshore breeze, and people would be flying kites. And as a young kid, I thought, this really looks fun. I wanna fly kites. And it just aroused my desire to fly kites. So one day I was at the five and dime and I got a kite, but I went down to the beach when the wind wasn't blowing and I didn't look around and realize people weren't flying kites. I just had this desire to fly a kite. So I ran up and down the beach and got sweaty and my kite didn't fly. This is a true story, okay? Then I think I tried to fly it at home where there were trees and they got caught in the trees. And I really thought, why do people fly kites? That was my only memory of it, okay? <laughs> this is a true story. And I got involved in other things like athletics, so I didn't pick up kite flying any again, okay? Now, 30 years later, I'm at Gulf Shores, and my oldest daughter, people are flying kites, and she said, hey, Dad, we should fly kites. And I was like, yeah, and I'm nervous. I really, this is as true as a day is long. So we go over to Tom Thumb, and we get a kite. And I give her the kite, and I got the string, and I, I get about, you know, 20 feet away, and I'm like, sweetie, when I say let go, let go, and I'll start running, because I was nervous about this operation. She lets go, I take one step, and the kite pops up, and it starts flying, and my life flashes before me. <laughs> and I'm like, it is not easy to, I mean, it's not hard to fly a kite when the wind's blowing, okay? Now, guys, here's the deal, and I know you don't believe, well, actually, you might, you're Presbyterian, you might believe this, okay? God's sovereign, and he trains us. Remember, he disciplines, the, now, that's just training, he lets us go through difficulty because he loves us and he wants us to grow more like him. Oftentimes when you're struggling in marriage, you're looking at yourself and your spouse at what you're doing wrong instead of God is letting us go through difficulty that will help us see our flesh so that we can become more like him. All right? So what you do is you try to get out of it really quickly and you run up and down the shore trying to fly your kite and it won't fly because the wind's not blowing. What is the Holy Spirit like? So guys, here's my thing. When it's good, then you fly your kite. And when the kite is flying, you let it fly. 
and you let it keep flying, okay? You have to learn to celebrate what's really good. Now, guys, it may sound strange for me to end on this because hopefully we can flesh it out. I know how I teach has some heaviness. I believe what the scriptures teach, if you learn to do the hard things well, you will find life. Because evil says, just find the easy way and that'll bring you life, okay? But guys, I know your marriage isn't always hard. There are beautiful, fun times. Celebrate those. And when you experience a good moment, lean into it. Like as a family, we continued to have dinner as much as we could together, okay? And one out of every four times we enjoyed it as the kids grew up. Again, that's, come on, that's a little funny, okay? So when it was good, I didn't quickly get up from the table to go do work because it was good and I lingered and I enjoyed it, okay? And guys, when you get to a new space, realize because the kingdom's coming, you're always going to see that there's further to go. And so oftentimes, as, and this is so not Christian, so I'm afraid if I start celebrating this, it's going to end. That's, that is not Christianity. We should throw better parties and we should celebrate small victories much better. I had a young couple, I did their premarital. They came in after a year and a half and were overwhelmed with how difficult it was. And so I said, well, let's look back to when we started. Has there been any change? And they saw this change. And as I amplified that change, I said, all you guys need to do is keep doing what you're doing and you're going to experience more of that. The kingdom's coming. But we minimize. What we do is we look back and we minimize good change and we look forward and shut down because we think we can never be there. I want you to look back and celebrate any good change, any good moment. Lean, in, lean into it. Enjoy it. And when you look ahead, don't shut down. Say, Lord, you're helping me see what it's going to look like in the kingdom. I'm going to keep moving towards that. He who hungers and thirsts for righteousness will be satisfied. We don't change by working. We change by thirsting, by hungering, and by waiting. Okay? Because you're good Presbyterians. You're not good enough to help yourselves become better. And you're not bad enough to mess it up. God is committed. He who began a good work will perfect it. He's the author and finisher of your faith. So start celebrating more. One of the passages when I talk about this, I love to talk about when the Israelites crossed the Jordan. There's the passage before they crossed the Jordan, they're kind of like, it's going to be disaster. And then after they crossed the Jordan, they're singing this song, how God threw the horse and the rider into the sea. And, and I'm telling you guys, if you think about it, there's these moments where you're afraid all this bad is going to happen. Then you get through that moment and it's better. Enjoy that. Celebrate that. Sing the song about God threw the horse and the rider into the sea. Okay? All right. So as we're growing in our marriage, we're sorrowing, which I talked a lot about, sins and weaknesses, but we're celebrating strengths and good moments. That's simply how you move forward. Okay? All right. We've got a good... 20 minutes for a Q&A. Yeah, we do. I'm going to stand up because I need to